Welcome to episode 12 of Refined by Fire podcast. As always, Refined by Fire is a Brothers in Battle Media production and brought to you by the fine people at Elkhart Brass. You got to go check out Elkhart Brass's Brass Tax and Hard Facts video series. Uh, most recently, uh, The Bounce from Lieutenant Ray McCormick, a guy who maybe knows a couple things about handline advancement. Season two of Brass Tax and Hard Facts is just crushing it. So go to Elkhart Brass's YouTube or Facebook page to check those out. And remember, uh, those guys have reps all around the country who are there to help you out. If you're looking to maybe make a nozzle change, if you're specking a new engine, need nozzles, appliances, monitors, that kind of stuff, uh, give those reps a call. They're more than happy to come out, do a demo for you. So um, many thanks to Elkhart Brass, as always, for sponsoring the show. My guest for episode 12 is Chris Brennan. Chris is a fire service veteran of about 18 years and was a lieutenant with the Harvey, Illinois Fire Department uh, when his career was unfortunately ended shortly uh, due to a head injury. Chris is the author of The Combat Position, a fantastic book, still available on Penwell. Uh, Chris is also the founder of FireServiceWarrior.com. Fire Service Warrior was a fantastic website and kind of movement really that blew up uh, between like 2011 and 2014, uh, that time when social media was really blowing up and uh, was is just a fantastic resource. All kinds of great contributors to that site. Uh, I think a Fire Service Warrior, kind of like the Seattle grunge scene of the early 90s, except maybe without like illicit drug usage and groupies. Um, but they had so many great contributors, people who are now really having an influence on a regional and national scale. Guys like Brian Brush, Gary Lane, Jonah Smith, Jason Jeffries, uh, Leo Melli, Pete Solzer, Travis Rask. I, I know I'm forgetting people, but really a fantastic kind of lineup. These guys when they were up and coming uh, who now kind of settled into their own as some of the really finer voices in the American Fire Service. And really, in my experience, are the ones that I've met, some of the finest individuals, some of the finest human beings in the fire service. So I had a really great talk with Chris. Chris is very intelligent, very well-read, uh, concise and critical thinker, and I really enjoyed this. This is a dream come true. Fire Service Warrior was a huge influence uh, on my career, which you already know if you've listened uh, to many episodes of this podcast. So with no further interruption and jawjacking from me, here is my talk with the exceptional Chris Brennan. My guest today is Chris Brennan. Chris, uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I usually open with like maybe a slightly unusual question, but in your case, I think we could learn a lot about you if you just like recount what your morning was like, because it sounds like you have a pretty good routine and a significantly early wake up time. Yeah. I Well, I wish I had a good routine. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly have a lot that happens. So with the Adult Academy project that I am part of, uh, we are doing in-person training now, strength and conditioning training. And so four days a week, uh, my alarm goes off at about 310. Um, I am out of the house by about 345 uh, to unlock the gym and get going. Uh, we run a class that starts at 430 a.m., 
So we, we do classes. I coach a 4.30 a.m. class and a 6 a.m. class four days a week. So that's, that's how I start my morning, those four days. The other three days are a little bit better sleep days. Um, I'm pretty particular about sleep. I'm a big believer that sleep is a, a critical thing for physical and mental health. So I very purposefully program my non-work days as rest days. And those are physical rest days as well as actual recovery days for sleep. So get as much sleep as I possibly can. I like it. I have in the last uh, 18 months really uh, focused on my sleep and found a, a huge uh, physical and psychological benefit to that. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. We could spend as much or as little time on it, but I could talk about it forever. That's amazing. Uh, Chris, uh, so you kind of gained a little bit of a fire service profile with your book, The Combat Position, and then starting Fire Service Warrior. Yeah. So could you run us through the genesis of Fire Service Warrior, you know, how it got started, but more particularly, why? Sure. Um, so we'll go, um, we'll go with the full story, and it, it's a little bit of a winding road. Good. Um, but, but we'll go all the way back. Um, I've written about in several places um, the, the deaths of uh, Anthony Lockhart and Pat King at 106th and Western Avenue back in February of 1998. Um, when I was in high school, I started hanging out at um, City of Chicago Firehouse, and um, Tony was one of the, the guys on the crew there and got to know him and got to know all those guys. And Tony's death affected me pretty deeply when it happened. And it, it sort of set me on a course of trying to trying to make sure that that didn't happen um, if I had anything to do about it. And like any, I mean, I was, so 98, I was 20, about to be 22. I was 21 when Tony died and, um, had, w was figuring out my path in the fire service at that point and committed myself very heavily to training, you know, went, went and took the, the saving our own class and worked on getting that class brought to the department I was on and, you know, doing as much training as I possibly could. Um, and that all during that whole period of time, I was also doing a lot of work with the Illinois Fire Service Institute. I started off as a facilitator in the HAZMAT program and became an instructor in the HAZMAT program and began doing a lot of work in, you know, sort of post 9-11, pre 9-11 and then post 9-11 in the uh, WMD response world, um, working with some of the, the state response teams um, on their kind of planning and prep um, which led to me doing a bunch of consulting work for um, first a company called AMTI uh, out of Virginia Beach and then um, SAIC um, doing state and local exercises as well as um, DOD uh, consulting work, uh, base support stuff, things like that, dealing with the, the, the CBRNE WMD space and in my time, AMTI is an was an interesting company. It was founded by um, three plank owners from Development Group, from the Navy SEALs. So a lot of the a lot of the guys that were part of the team um, were 
out of this special operations community. And so a lot of former SEALs and then my direct boss uh, took a disability retirement out of seven special forces group. Um, and what, what I started paying attention to in working with these guys and seeing how they worked and learning how they planned, learning how they did things, I started asking questions about, okay, how do you guys do what you do? Because for me in the fire service, it was, it was about, okay, I, I, I have this passion for, for training. I have this passion for operational planning. I have this passion for figuring out how we can execute our mission well. Well, here are two groups of people that do it at a really, really high level. And I started picking their brains. I wanted to figure out, all right, how, how do you do it? And I don't care necessarily about the 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 military tactical piece. I could care less about blowing doors off hinges. That's not my job. I'm not a SWAT guy. I'm a fireman. And But training-wise, assessment-wise, planning-wise, development-wise, how do we get to that level? And, and that led to me starting to, to make notes about that stuff. Like, okay, how do, you know, I, I distinctly remember, I still probably have a napkin somewhere sitting in what was my, my local pub at the time, writing down on napkins while having a pint of Guinness, you know, how I want a SEAL team, not a frat house in my commentary about the fire service. And again, it was not the... The idea of, you know, let's be what people think this community is about. It's, all right, how, how do you d get a group of people ready to perform at their best to take on risky situations, to take on life-threatening environments, and manage risk as effectively as possible without shirking our duty? And that was sort of the genesis of it. And I started sitting down and writing things down. Um, you know, writing things down in notebooks, writing things down in blog posts, um, you know, before, before there was, uh, fireservicewarrior.com, there was the fireservicewarrior blogspot blog. And before that there was a live journal blog. And each of those iterations were ways of starting to, to process those thoughts and, and get them down on paper. Around the same time, I was starting to teach more and more outside of the uh, outside of the hazmat space, I was teaching more fire academy classes. I was teaching more um, what in the FSI program. IFSI program is called cornerstone classes, where we were, you know, with me and a partner would be going to local departments and teaching RIT or teaching basic live fire stuff. And that was sort of a, that was a testing ground to start trying out how do you expose people to these ideas? How do you how do you ratchet up the skill acquisition? So that, yeah, I mean, long-winded way of saying that that kind of all came together then right in that 2007 period when I started publishing Fire Service Warrior as a blogspot site. That led to publishing articles in Fire Engineering about the topic. Um, my connection with them had gone back to writing Fire Service hazmat articles for them back a few years, which led to them being willing to take on some of the fire service warrior stuff. Um, that, that led to the book deal with Penwell to publish the combat position. Um, you know, and then teaching a lot of this stuff at FDIC and on my own at classes and things like that and getting more and more out there sort of teaching 
my material as opposed to just going and teaching for a fire academy or a different training academy and stuff like that. And it, it sort of all came together then in 2011, right after the combat position came out and Brian Brush sent me an email and said, hey, man, I really love what you're doing. Would you be willing to take a look at some of my stuff and maybe publish something that I've written? And Brian was the first sort of contributor to Fire Service Warrior. And I always attributed it to, uh, it's the idea of a demonstration of social value, right? So if you're the only guy standing at the bar, you're creepy, right? Right. The second you've got somebody standing next to you, everybody else goes, all right, those dudes are cool. Yeah, suddenly you know? it's a movement, right? People will listen to you more more readily than if you're just the one voice in the wilderness. And things exploded once Brian got into the mix. And with that, then, you know, we from 2011, I mean, realistically, up till 2014, when I got hurt, we were on a tear. We were, we were all over. Um, you know, guy, guys and gals were coming in and writing for the website. We, we were doing classes. We were going and teaching uh, programs all over the place. And, uh, and it was really, it was really exciting. It was, we were really kicking it. So that, that was sort of the, the genesis and the, the why, the why really just comes back to standing at 106th and Western Avenue, freezing my ass off, um, knowing that my buddy was dead inside of a building. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Uh, gosh, you touched on a lot of things I'd like to follow up on. I think when you, when you're talking about writing, one of the things that you in particular, seemed to do with fire service warriors, you always approached firefighting. It seemed to me, don't let me put words in your mouth, but with a really philosophical and intellectual bent. So what led to you approaching the job in that manner? Um, so I, I like to remove obstacles and to me, the best way to remove obstacles to understanding is by really tearing things apart. And I guarantee you, I was the annoying kid who asked why a thousand times, you know, why is it this way? Explain that to me. Why do we do it like that um, growing up? And, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer in the importance of, of getting beyond sort of our assumptions about things and asking deeper questions. And I was sort of raised to be an armchair philosopher in a lot of ways. I went to, did 12 years of Catholic schools growing up and in my time in Catholic schools had some real, had a couple of teachers who were real theologians and we really deeply explored theology as a topic and it always fascinated me. And as I got older and began reading more deeply about about theology, reading more into philosophy, um, I really found that idea of disciplining your thinking was important for making sure you didn't miss things and trying to trying to ask questions and not accept um, not accept a because we've always done it this way answer because we've always done it this way has validity to a point. But why did we start doing it that way? How did we get to the point where this is why we do it? Uh, because, because we do it for a reason. Let's find those reasons. And for me then, as I got more and more into the fire service warrior stuff, what I recognized was that I think 
initially sort of intuitively and then as time was went on more and more thoughtfully that all tactics are local and I can't tell somebody when they should pull a two and a half versus when they should pull an inch and three quarter. Nobody can tell you that unless they work on your department, unless they work with your staffing, unless they work with your sort of first do, unless they work with your water supply, unless they work with your rigs, what works in Chicago or LA or FDNY is going to be different than what works for a crew that pulls up with three. And that's going to be different than what works for a volunteer POC crew that pulls up with one person driving and everybody else meeting them at the scene. Those that you can't just draw absolutes. And if you can't draw absolutes about tactics, then what you need to do is ask questions about how do we make these decisions. And that has to then strip away sort of the the conventions are important because they are deep lessons learned. There is deep wisdom in the, this is what we do. But we can also learn why we made those decisions. Like, how did this become what we do? And as time evolves, as equipment evolves, as training evolves, as our understanding of the fire ground evolves, well, maybe we take that genesis of, this is what we've always done, and can tighten it up a quarter of a turn. And I think the other part of it was, I recognize that, I mean, I'm, I'm 42 and people still think I look like I'm 24. When I was 32, people thought I was 16. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm five foot nine in fighting shape. I'm about 175 pounds and I've always worked in small suburban departments. I don't walk into a place with the gravitas of a, a John Salka. So I couldn't get buy-in with just a pedigree and an appearance. I knew I had to be able to explain myself. And I couldn't just go with, here's what I believe in my gut. I need to be able to tell you why I think that way. Um, and I think the other part of it was I always knew that I was, I was pushing against the but we've always done it this way crowd in a lot of ways. And if you're going to do that, you need to be able to justify what you're thinking. They may, not, they may never agree with you. They don't have to see it your way. But for me, what was important was being able to identify the holes in my thinking before I said it as best as I could and and taking that time. So maybe that answers your question. No, that's a fantastic <laughs> answer. I think there's a lot to be learned there. I'm going to have to re-listen to that answer several times. Me uh, too. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago when you were hurt. And yeah. uh, you recently did uh, shoot a video and put it on your YouTube channel. I think yeah. you called it the day the universe hit me with a baseball bat or something along something those like lines. That. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so take as long or as short as you like, but can you tell us about the circumstances behind your injury that ended up uh, requiring you to uh, retire? Sure. Um, it's actually a really straightforward story. We were, uh, I was lieutenant. I was a lieutenant working overtime one year to the day from the day I got promoted. Uh, the only overtime shift I had worked in several years. And um, we reported structure fire. We respond little nickel and dime, just barely beyond a hand pump fire in a one-story 
kind of uh, row house almost little apartments. Um, second or third rig on the scene, um, real quick lap, real quick primary, um, check for some fire extension. And we're, we're kind of done. We're farting around a little bit, getting ready to start picking up. And um, big storms start blowing in. And uh, the shift commander's like, hey, let's hurry up and get everything put picked up and let's get out of here before this gets bad. And I went to go put uh, pike pole and halligan back on the, the side of my engine. And as I was putting the pike pole on the side of the rig, uh, just hear a crack and get smacked upside the back of the head um, with a tree limb that was ripped off of a tree and thrown across the street by the wind. And, um, you know, knocked, hit me in the head, knocked the helmet off my head, knocked me down to the ground a little bit. Um, and all I did was immediately grab my helmet and get around to the other side of the rig because all I was thinking is, I don't know what else is coming here. And, um, you know, literally the whole seeing stars and Tweety Bird thing, like, you know, knew I had been rocked. And, um, so got around, kind of shook it off a little bit as best as I could. Um, we, we, we got loaded up, got in the rig, um, told my crew what had happened, got back to the station, called my shift commander, told him what happened, said, Hey man, I, you know, we got to write this one up. Like I'm feeling it here. I think I'm okay. Um, but we, we got to write this one up and, um, it was, and then, you know, the storms came and so we ran, so this was about, uh, around 7 PM. Like it was just after dinner. It was about midnight before I got to kind of break free and get over to urgent aid and get checked out. Um, and by that point I just, you know, I felt fine. You know, I had a headache, my neck hurt a little bit. The doctor there said, you know, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, if you think I can go back to work, I want to just go back to work. I don't want to go home if I don't have to. He's like, yeah, I think you're fine. And, um, so went back, finished the shift. Um, you know, it was seven thirty, seven forty-five in the morning by the time I finished up my paperwork and got out of there. And, um, about two o'clock that next afternoon was running around with my wife and started getting these electric headaches, nausea, dizzy, just felt terrible um ended up going to my own urgent aid they did cts they did x-rays went all right well nothing's broken and you don't have a bleed you got a concussion go go home and rest and um and that was all she wrote <laughs> it was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back you know i know your recovery process was maybe a couple years long you know trying mm -hmm. to get back on the job and and um, yep. ultimately that, that it just wasn't happening um yeah Anything, any takeaways from that, that, that you could like give advice to other guys, maybe going through the same thing? You know, it, it's a tough one because everybody's an individual and everybody's brains different. I guess the one thing that I would say is do what you're told, trust your doctors, right? We are all, well, many of us are very aggressive, don't sit well, you know, kids with undiagnosed ADD, right? We got to get back at it. We got to get back at it. Um, the big thing that I would say is as fast as you can, 
dial your sleep in. Because the the lack of sleep was something that I dealt with quite a bit in that recovery process on and off. I've dealt with some really, really disturbed sleep. Once I started taking, um, once we started going through sort of these cycles of medications, um, I was dealing with really awful nightmares. Um, I mean, sometimes every night for months in a couple of periods. Um, other times they'd come and go. And, and a lot of that was, in my estimation, induced by the medications. Um, I had never really had nightmares before that. And I'm at a point now where I don't have nightmares. Um, and it, all of those kind of spikes and ebbs revolved around medication changes. Um, but you, you just, you have to be patient. I mean, especially if, especially if you're in a place where the, the concussion is significant enough that you are going to be playing with medication. And again, I think that one of the things that firefighters struggle with is taking our time. We live in a high tempo environment and we are used to seeing results very quickly, right? We go in, things either get better or they get worse real quick. There's no, we're not wondering kind of how this is going. This is a whole different world. And, and you just have to, as much as you can, be patient with it. Um, talk to people about your frustrations. Talk to them. Be honest with your doctors about what's going on. Um, and take the deep breath. Like, you're, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to, you're probably going to have some of the experiences that I had of, like, losing words. You know, I remember the one day that I was trying to tell my wife that the keys were on the bookcase and for the life of me could not come up with the word bookcase, had to go through a mental process of decoding. What is this thing called? Okay. It's a shelving system. It's got books on it. I know there's a word for this. What it like, and for anybody that spent any time in my house, me not remembering the word bookcase is terrifying because there's <laughs> dozens of them. Yeah. Um, and I, and I joke now cause my wife's a three time cancer survivor and she's been through, she's been through two cranial surgeries, chemo and radiation. So there are days that she and I are like, you know, two Neanderthals. Like we just both point at shit <laughs> and go, what? Ah! neither of us can come up with what it's called. And you, it, yeah, I mean, some days it's like that. You just got to kind of laugh at it. And yeah. Well, thanks for that. I, I, yeah, I can appreciate that there's not like a single silver bullet maybe, but it's something we don't talk about a lot. And as I've gotten a little deeper don't in my drink. career. That, that would be the silver bullet. Uh, During that time period, do not drink alcohol. You're going to want to. I'm very fortunate that I had quit drinking at the time that I was hurt. But don't. your brain's already damaged. Don't hinder it anymore. Take Take the meds that they give you, but that would be probably the only absolute get off the jug. <laughs> I like it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like um, to fight fire? Uh, you were in Harvey at that time, right? I was. So as I understand it, a uh, uh, smallish suburb of Chicago, but much like many uh, Midwest towns, once a very vibrant, uh, a lot of manufacturing jobs. And, uh, you know, since the eighties has really experienced a decline. So what was it like uh, to work in that town? Um, Harvey was an amazing place to work. It taught me a tremendous amount. And I felt very fortunate that I got there when I did in my career, that I already had been 
Um, you know, I had almost a decade in the fire service by the time I got there and got a career job. Um, I had already been teaching at the state fire Academy. I had already been teaching at other academies. I'd had a lot of live fire training time, uh, for a suburban firefighter in the Chicago metropolitan area. I'd already had a decent amount of real work experience on the fire ground. Um, I just kind of always been lucky, you know, right place, right time and was able to walk in with a pretty good grounding in kind of the mechanics of firefighting. And I had come from, I'd come from Darien Woodridge. So I had come from a place most recently that was a training Mecca. I mean, we did a lot of training. We trained every single day and my skill set, my skill set was really pretty sharp. I felt. So I walked in the door, you know, I, I it, it's half kidding, but literally it was almost guarantee for anybody that started on the city of Harvey. If you walked in the front door, you were going to go to a working fire your first day on shift. And I walked in the door, had a reported fire at, you know, we started at seven. I had a reported fire at eight o'clock and had a working fire at lunch like that. You knew if you got a new guy, you were going to work that day. It was just the way, <laughs> like, ju again, just the way the universe worked. And it was very rare. Like I, one of my buddies um, who started a little bit after me, a guy like he was losing his mind because it took him almost a week to get a working fire. After he started. <laughs> That's unreal. And, um, so it, it was a town that the best way I think of describing it is that it was a group of dudes who may not have had all of the classroom sessions. They may not have gone and sat through all the lectures. They may not have been on the training ground in years. But pound for pound, I would take any of the shifts, any of the guys, any combination of the, the 10 dudes that I worked with on any given day and gone to war against any other department on the planet and said, you know, said, said to the big departments, said to the little departments, said to the departments that had a ton of training, said to anybody, give me your 10. I'll take, you pick any 10 of mine, me and nine more, pick any of them. And let's go head to head and just go crush it. You know, we, we would often show up mutual aid to other towns with, you know, it'd be you and one other guy because a lot of times our outlying stations were just two people and we'd pull up and it would be, you know, they'd be calling everybody else out and they'd send us in. Uh, we joked a lot that it was sort of the, the one riot, one ranger sort of world that you showed up. You just, you showed up and you went in and you fixed the problem yeah. day in, day out, you know, everybody out, Harvey go in. And um, so it was an amazing place to work. And we had we had some some of our bosses were uh, had both the book smarts and the book training and the fireground experience, but they all had the fireground experience and they knew how to read a building. They had that sort of recognition prime decision making that that intuitive understanding of what was happening on the fireground at any given point in time because they had the sets and reps. So it was an amazing place to work. And, you know, seven square mile town plus or minus. And when I was there, most years we were averaging around a hundred structure fires a year in town. So, 
you got a lot of work, you know, we had, you know, we had periods of time, um, we had periods of time where for weeks on end, we were going to working fire a day, every shift, you know, the, the most working fires I've ever had in a single day was five. We used to have two fires a day with some regularity. You got a lot of sets and reps, you know, the other thing that I'll say that it did for me, because I also spent, um, I've always been a bay, bay door open, sitting on the front bumper or sitting in a chair kind of guy. I've always been a big believer in the fact that um, the fire department, you know, that, that whole Vonnegut quote of, you know, there, there is no more stirring sign of man's humanity to his fellow man than a fire engine. Um, I've always been a big believer that one of the things that the fire department is there to do is to give people hope. It is to give people the understanding that there are human beings out there that have, um, for lack of a better term, unconditional love. And that in, in, a, in any community, people need that presence. They need to know that there are people that will do anything in the world for them. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think the fire department benefits from that law enforcement will never benefit from is that we're not there to get anybody in trouble. You know, like I, I always joked, but it's sort of true. You can call me, I can show up, break out your windows, cut a hole in your roof and you will make me cookies. Even if you're the one who called the cop, you hate seeing him there. And that's just, their job is rough and it's a very different environment. But knowing that and knowing that in a, you know, especially in a very poor community, that um, that sort of that setting that standard of I am here for you always seemed important to me. And, and having positive interactions with the citizens of the town and being there and being available for them to just walk up and talk to was important for me personally. Um, it, it, I'll be honest that, that decade there, almost a decade, you know, of active service time, um, really had me ask a lot of questions about what, what we prioritize in this country and, and how we, uh, how, how things like government marginalize people and set people aside and choose to put walls around certain communities and either either intentionally or just completely through omission um leave people behind and uh it, it my my sort of current worldview is very very much informed by those experiences that's really good uh i i want to skip ahead because i think the way you ended that they're talking about your worldview and kind of how you view our country. You know, you're an educated person. If I'm not mistaken, you gained your college degree as an adult. Yeah, I went, I went back. I had gone back to school just before I got hurt mm -hmm. um, and finished my associates and my bachelor's while I was laid up. Mm -hmm. So specific to the fire service, I guess, what do you see the value of that college degree being for a firefighter? You know, either in that back seat or you know throughout the throughout the trajectory of of one's career. Well, I mean, formal education is valuable in the same way that going to a gym is valuable. You 
get to have people teach you how to do it or work on your technique, right? So whether you are going to the gym, going to a training class, or going to a university, what the instructor, the coach is there to do is to look at what you're doing and offer you suggestions on how to improve your form. And I think that if what you want to gain is the ability to um, have your ideas questioned, have somebody show you how to uh, how to read critically, how to think critically, how to practice those skills, how to research. I, I think the university environment's a perfectly valid way of going about that. And in many ways, again, could you do exactly the same amount of knowledge acquisition outside of the university setting? Yeah, you sure can. Because at the end of the day, if you have, if you can read, you have an internet connection and a library card, all of the information in the world is accessible to you. What, what the university setting does is offer you a way of practicing those skills in an isolated way. And if you recognize that it's valuable as an isolated environment, right? Like, yeah, I have dealt with plenty of people who had PhDs that were high-level researchers that literally couldn't figure out how to turn the lights on in the room they were in. Yes, absolutely true. That is not just a stereotype. There are people who are brilliant that could not navigate their way out of a paper bag. That doesn't mean they don't have something to offer you. It means that you don't ask them to teach you how to get out of a paper bag. You, you ask them to teach you what they know what they're good at, and you go in and you suck every bit out of them that you can, and then you figure out how to apply it in the rest of your life. So in that way, I think that it's, it's setting aside the, you know, well, it's good for promotion, it's good for your resume, setting aside all of that, just as a way of practicing your learning, what I can say is that I became a much better reader I became a much deeper thinker. I became a much more critical of the information coming in and parsing that information through what I learned in going through the university experience. And I was pretty good at it already, and it tightened my game up a lot. Cool. Where did you learn how to write? Because you were writing uh, articles and books well before you were, you know, had finished your formal education. Um, I was always fascinated by writing. I started writing when I was about six years old. Um, the first thing that I remember writing was a, um, an, uh, essentially what would be known as a treatment for a Star Wars movie when I was about six. And, um, and I was always fascinated. I was always a big reader. Um, you know, I, I read very young and loved reading and have always loved reading and wanted to tell stories and started writing young. And then um, when I got as far as high school, um, you know, freshman year of high school, jumped into school newspaper. And um, the first place that I was assigned was writing sports. And I was not an athletic kid in any way, shape or form. I didn't know anything about sports. I didn't care about sports. So it forced me to have to learn how to actually interview people and learn and write and put things together. And, um, you know, was 
uh, wrote for and edited my high school newspaper all the way through school, um, got involved in literary magazine and writing for that, editing that, um, really, really loved all that. Um, and so that was sort of the, the genesis of that was just a, a, a deep and profound interest of working through things in a kind of a creative writing sense. And then, um, got, you know, got done with school, was in the fire service, was, um, working at the time full-time as a dispatcher's aide for the, uh, uh, fire alarm office in the city of Chicago. Um, and, um, had some opinions on sort of the way, the way we did some things and basically sat down and wrote a memo. And that memo eventually became the genesis of um, one of the articles that I published. Uh, it was actually an article that was published in 911 Magazine. Um, and then started writing, you know, immediately post 9-11, um, started writing thoughts on preparing for sort of that world and how, how we would work in that world. Um, having spent quite a bit of time studying it from an academic standpoint, just out of personal interest, um, as well as taking what I knew about kind of the emergency response hazmat piece of it and putting that all together. So that's that's where my fire service writing career started, was writing stuff about WMD and hazmat response. Um, but it, it, it goes back to a, a six-year-old kid who wanted a new Star Wars movie. I think that's great because it, it really leads into uh, talking about your new project. I mean, what you were doing at six years old was you were developing skill and you didn't realize it, but you were, you, you know, you were developing neural pathways and myelin to insulate them, you know, all, all the way from six years old through your, your high school uh, career there with the newspaper. So now, you know, in addition to bringing back Fire Service Warrior, which is something you're doing and we'll talk about in a little bit, but your yeah. current project is something called Adult Academy. So can you tell me a little bit about that? So Adult Academy is myself and my partner, Sean. Um, Sean and I have known each other now since about 2012. Um, Sean originally was an athlete at the CrossFit gym that I coached at back in the day. Um, he eventually became a coach there and became, uh, actually, when I got hurt, he replaced me as the general manager um, of the place. And um, eventually... Uh, you know, we've talked for years about where we're sort of the same person in a lot of ways. Like we, we are very, very similar people with similar, but different backgrounds. And one of the things that we've always sort of focused on is this idea that, you know, we're both very invested as parents and, um, believe deeply in the idea that, you know, Sean's career, uh, as an adult has been as, as an educator, and, um, but we both deeply believe in the idea that, you know, the only way we make the world a better place is by making better kids, but the only way to have better kids is to have better adults. And that, um, a lot of people focus on creating programs for kids, which is great, but those kids then go home to parents and they're exposed to adults as parents, as coaches, as mentors, formally or informally, and that absent working on the adults, there's only so much ground those kids are going to gain. And for me, what it really came down to 
was um, as silly as this sounds. I was utterly sick and tired of hearing parents rant about common core state standards because you hear people, you see people. And back when I was on Facebook, I would see this and they'd be like, you know, I don't understand common core math. And my comment was always, there is no common core math. That is a total misnomer. What there is, is a curriculum developed by a curriculum company attempting to address a set of standards. Common Core is a set of standards. Standards are good. Standards tell us a minimum threshold of ability. We have them in the fire service. What we don't have is a single curriculum to present them. So while I'm totally okay with people hating Pearson as a textbook manufacturer that dominates an industry, think critically about what you're talking about. And that's what I wanted. I wanted parents. I wanted coaches. I wanted mentors. I wanted teachers who would take a step back and ask why. Ask those philosophical questions. Who would approach working with kids with intentionality and giving them tools and giving them resources. But most importantly, just like we found with Fire Service Warrior, giving them a community of people that cared about the same things that would push one another, that would challenge one another, that when they said, you know, well, I think this is dumb, we would immediately, without any rancor or vitriol, come back and go, oh, really? I kind of think that's cool. Why don't you like it? What, what don't you like about it? And, and ask them to justify their beliefs. Again, not in, a, not in being a prick kind of way, but in a very real, loving, supportive, empathetic way of, well, I don't look at the world that way. Why? Why do you think that? And maybe maybe you change my way of looking at the world. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I've missed something. Or maybe that thing just scares you. And for the most part, I have always ascribed to the theory that um, you know, we the the universal human emotion is fear. It is the universal emotion of mammals. And um, you know, the the best expression I've ever heard, uh and I use it all the time. Travis Rask said it when we were having a conversation one time. You know, we are chimps with a beta expansion package. And and I think that that's very true. That's, you know, that's why the podcast that Sean and I do is Apes and Pants. We are simply apes wearing clothes. And we ascribe as humans way too much belief in ourselves as rational creatures. We ignore the fact that mostly what we are, we are 98% chimp and we react 98% of the time out of an emotionally driven and I think fear driven place. You know what we do if we're not afraid? Nothing. We sit. We conserve energy. Fear of a lack of resources is what drives us to go to work because I want to put a roof over my head and eat, right? If I had an unlimited vat, of food in front of me, I wouldn't do anything but sleep, eat, and fornicate, because that's what the biological drives are. And, and that means, but that's not, yeah, so that, that to me is kind of all wrapped up in what the adult academy process is, is it's acknowledging, yeah, you, you are, you're a, you're a pile of guts and black stuff. You are a bunch of 
nerves and fears, and you've probably got some gaping void in your soul that was created by something when you were little that you haven't worked through yet. Let's try not to pass that damage on to the next generation. Let's try and engage with our kids in a as mentors. You know, parenting is just full-time mentorship. Sometimes of somebody who is biologically related to you, sometimes of somebody who's not, but one way or another, it is full-time mentorship. That's excellent. As a mentor. That's an excellent outlook. I love people who are really invested in parenting um, and, and thoughtful and mindful about it. And uh, I continue to try to be, to improve in that way. Uh, but it's, it's a process for sure. I recently, it is, it's super There's hard. No days off. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah. no days off, right? Yeah. My, no my kids have yet to take a vacation from me. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Once they get old enough, you start sending them away partially for that. It's partially so that they grow, but it's also so that you get a break. Oh, for sure. Uh, recently, I read a short blog post on Adult Academy called Training Wheels, and yeah. I'm personally completely fascinated by skill acquisition. Uh, it's kind of what you speak to in this piece a little bit. Uh, so can you walk us through that skill acquisition metaphor of training wheels? Sure. So the basic idea is that when we start teaching a kid to ride a bike, we, um, you know, we don't start them off on a bicycle because it's an unstable environment and they have to have put together a whole bunch of skill sets of, um, you know, balance and pedaling and paying attention to what's going on ahead. And that's a lot to try and process when you're learning. So what do we do? We start them off on a tricycle, right? Very stable platform, can't fall over. They just learn how to pedal and steer. And then we move them to a bicycle and we start them with training wheels, firmly locked on. Right, we've changed the operating environment. Now they're higher off the ground. There's a few changes, but they still have that stable platform. And then over time, we loosen, you know, one way of teaching a kid to ride a bike. It's not the only way, but for this metaphor, the way is that we slowly loosen the nuts on the training wheels. And each time we loosen the nut, what we're doing is we're inducing more instability in the system. Right? The kid has to balance more. They have to put more of these inputs together and manage them. And eventually what we're doing is we're removing the training wheels altogether. And in a skill acquisition, as a metaphor for skill acquisition, to me what that is is that you want to take a learner and keep them on the ragged edge of failing and not failing, but on the succeeding side of that metric, right? They should always be just a little outside of their comfort zone. But if all they're doing is failing and failing and failing and failing and failing, they're not learning how to succeed. It's sort of the same idea that we see in using punishment as a tool. Um, punishment will work with social mammals to teach them how to do things. But what it doesn't, I shouldn't say that, it doesn't teach them how to do anything. It teaches them what not to do. A much more effective way is to teach them what to do. And to me, the model that you want to use with teaching is more the way we train. Like if you want to train a cat or you want to train a bird of prey, you can't use punishment. They don't respond to it 
in any way, shape, or form. They only respond to positive reinforcement because they're solitary hunters. So punishment just turns them off. They don't care because they're not pack animals. Um, if we train our kids through positive reinforcement and use that training wheel sort of metaphor of we build a scaffold and when they're, when they're very young and very new in any skill acquisition process, that scaffold is very tight. And as they get older, as they get better at applying their skill, you space it out a little bit more and a little bit more. So the firefighting example, right, would be teaching SCBA emergency procedures. And I've talked about this a lot, but the idea is that, okay, we start with in Recruit Academy, you are in the classroom, no gear, no gloves, no nothing. Here's your air pack. Here's your air pack. Here's your mask. Okay. I'm going to say and do. You're going to say and do. And you put your hands here and here on the pack frame. Okay. We reach down with this hand. We turn the bottle on. We call out our air pressure. We lift the bottle. Like, and we go step by step by step. And as we build that neural pattern of what we want to do, each time we get to a point of consistent success, we change the environment to be a little more difficult, right? But we don't go from, okay, you're able to do this in the classroom without any mistakes to, we don't even jump to, now here's the final time standard, go. We go from, you've never had a time standard to a time standard that everybody can meet. Nobody should be able to mess this up. But simply by saying there's a time standard, I've induced stress, right? And this is where that whole stress inoculation piece comes in. Life is all stress inoculation training because anytime you get out of the operating environment where you see near 100% success, your stress level goes up, your anxiety level goes up. We want to titrate the amount of stress that the organism is under so that it's learning. It's the same thing with a barbell, right? If I take and put a barbell on your back and you've never squatted before, I'm going to start by just having you air squat. I'm not going to throw body weight on there because I'm going to break you. I'm just going to have you squat. And once your feet are in the right spot and your body's moving reasonably well, I'm going to throw a barbell on your back. I'm going to have you do that two or three times. And then I'm going to start adding weight. And then once we get to a point where you're reasonably competent in the movement, well, now I can start loading. I can start applying stress because that's all putting weight on the bar is. And it's all loosening the training wheels is, is I'm applying stress. And in applying stress, I am forcing you to learn to do this at a level where you're on the ragged edge of performance. And by doing that, I deeply seat that learning and also teach you to succeed because I eventually I am going to train you to failure in anything because I need you to also know how to fail. But that needs to happen in a controlled setting where I've given you the tools to succeed. And then I have you pushed to the point where you can't succeed anymore because now you start to figure out what you have to do to get beyond that plateau or that hurdle. But you need to have a solid basis of understanding before I expose you to that. Because what I want you to come away from every training session, whether it's in the gym, on the fire ground, learning to ride your bike, whatever, is that you have the tools to succeed. And then we, and we just, we back and forth. 
success to almost failure, success, almost failure, success, failure. Cool. You failed. What didn't go well that was going well before? Great. Let's make those changes. And now back to success, almost failure, success, almost failure. And in that way, we teach people how to be aware of the changes in their environment. We teach people how to isolate skills, but then how to start stacking skills, right? And, and I think that that methodology, that, that stress inoculation methodology is a really effective way of teaching. That's interesting. Um, so a lot of the principles you're talking about are pretty familiar with, but so would I be simplifying it too much to say that, that uh, the introduction of variables, well, you said the introduction of variables is, is the introduction of stress, right? Um, so is, is skill acquisition the ultimate stress inoculation? Is that kind of an accurate way to distill what you said? So I think um, all of life is stress inoculation training. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who would utterly disagree with me, and that's cool. Uh, I'm not claiming that I'm right. <laughs> it's just how I think, and it what make it's what makes sense for me. But I think all of life is stress inoculation training. Well, I shouldn't say that. All of life is stress. All of life is an application of stressors. And our ability to respond with resiliency to those stressors may be intentional or it may be implicit. And plenty of us just get through life very implicitly, right? There's no intentional thought to it. There's no development of a capacity to manage that stress. I think we do better when we teach people to manage that stress. And, and again, I base that on my experience on the fire ground. I base that on my experience of teaching people how to do SCBA emergency procedures. And that you can get up there and show somebody a PowerPoint and give them one, one demo of it and then throw them on a bay floor and just have them do donning drills for time, or you can slowly ratchet up the stress level. And what you see, what I have seen in my experience, in my time doing it, is people who were disasters with this skill in two hours become very competent because you take away their fear of failure when you slowly apply stress. When you, so I like to call it the Penn and Teller model, right? So if you watch Penn and Teller, they will, they have shows that they have done where they will literally tell you, they'll do the joke, right? They'll do the, the, the illusion. They will then break it all down and show you what they did bit by bit by bit by bit by bit, and then they do it again, you still didn't see it, right? But what they're reinforcing is the idea that the Adult Academy motto, it's not magic. There's no magic in this. There's just process. And the difference between thinking it's magic and realizing it's not is whether or not somebody takes the time to explain to you how the trick works. It's the same thing on the fire ground. It's the same thing with parenting. It's not magic. It's just a process. And if you explain the process to somebody, guess what? They can still be baffled by the results or they can still be amazed. Baffled may not be the right word. They can be amazed at the results that come out. And I, I literally, I have taken students who were career firefighters that were disasters 
at donning their SCBA. And in a period of two hours, with a little bit of training wheels to time standards to time standard plus negative reinforcement to utter success. So we might be diving too deep. I may end up editing this out, but this is, this is huge for my own interest. I'm just obsessed with this stuff. When you say it's not magic, there's only process. Something that I've been, I, I, I'm, I'm arriving on the edges of a conclusion that there's no such thing as talent. What's your take on that? You know, I think that there's validity in that as a default setting. Um, I, I don't think that there's any value in assuming that people's success is based on talent. I think that people have natural abilities. Um, they have natural capacities. Some people are almost born with a really good kinesthetic sense. And some people, no matter how much you work with them, are never going to know where their hips are. Um, so there is, what talent is, is some innate traits. And everybody has talent. The absence of an innate skill set does not preclude you from learning a skill. And I think that's the important part. People who have a natural affinity for art, right? They just have the dexterity. They have the eye. Their brain just has this default setting where at three years old, they can draw something and it looks like what they're trying to draw. Well, that's a person that if what they want is to be an artist, you can cultivate them to an elite level much more quickly. Can I take somebody who can only draw stick figures at the age of 14 and Will they develop the skill to be a master? Maybe. They can certainly get 80% of the way there, right? And that to me is the, the question when it comes to talent is if what you want is to be an international level competitor in something, you probably want to have sort of the, in, the, the inbuilt wiring to be able to reach that level and then cultivate it through deliberate practice. But if what you want to be is a really successful generalist, there is nothing that you can't figure out. Well, it's, it's kind of that 80-20 rule, yeah, right? Yeah, There's, if you apply the 80-20 concept in this way, to me what it is is um, you can be a really high-level performer at 80% capacity, right? 80% capacity in any domain is a really high-level performer. Is it going to get you on a podium at the Olympics or even to the Olympics? No. Does that need to be your goal? No. Right? You can be a very, very competent Olympic weightlifter and never go to the Olympics. Do you still get value from what you've learned? Yeah, I bet you do. You know, if you want to be dominant at an elite level in something, you probably should have some implicit wiring. That doesn't have to be everybody's goal. Right. What are your goals? What do you want to do? Your life is an N equals one experiment. And the question you have to answer is what do I want to achieve in this finite period of time that I have that's undefined? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to do? And specialization is cool, 
if you want to perform at the highest level of international competition. If you just want to be a good parent, good firefighter, a, a, a good spouse, a good friend, whatever, a good person, be a generalist. Focus on hitting 75 to 80%. And you know what you're going to be? You are going to look like an utter stud in everything you do to everybody around you. Everybody's going to hate you. Because it's going to <laughs> That's good. They're going to think it's effortless. They're not going to pay attention to all the deliberate practice that went into it. So 75 to 80% across multiple domains, yeah? yeah? Yeah, I think so. I think that's I think that's the way to try and live a healthy life. I like it. Oh, that's great. Uh, Chris, I'm going to move on to a couple of uh, standard refined by fire questions, and then I want to yeah. end uh, talking about Fire Service Warrior. But uh, sure. So tell me, what do you think the fire service is wasting its time on? Ooh, what do I think the fire service is wasting its time on? So give me the benefit of a, a bit of a, a necessary throat clearing and say this. I am honest about being relatively out of touch with the fire service. I have not been on the fire ground in just over four years. Um, I have not been keeping up on the literature. I have not been keeping up on the classes. Um, I, I am a bit out of touch. And with that in mind, what I would say we are wasting our time on, or the fire service in general is wasting its time on, is a desire for certain answers to questions that cannot be answered with certainty. I love all the research that's being done at UL. Love it. It is not going to give us the certain answer about whether or not we should go in the building. It's simply going to inform our decision-making. Um, I believe that much of the push by the NFFF and other fire service leaders in risk management is incredibly important. It will never bring about the certainty of a year without a firefighter fatality. If what we are focused on is trying to find certain answers, we're wasting our time. I love that answer. That's, that's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Chris, you're well read. If you could have every firefighter in America read one thing, it could be a book, it could be an article, it could be a blog, what would that be? Hmm. Um, it's a poem, uh, The Wisdom of Tecumseh. Um, so live your life that the fear of death may never enter your heart. Trouble no one about their religion. Respect other people in their view. Demand that they respect yours. Love your life. Perfect your life. Beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and its purpose in the service of your people. Prepare a noble death song for the day you cross the great divide. Always give a word or sign of salute when meeting or passing a friend, even a stranger when in a lonely place. Show respect to all people and grovel to none. When you arise in the morning, give thanks for the food and for the joy of living. If you can see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. Abuse no one and no thing, for abuse turns the wise one to fools, 
and robs the spirit of its vision. When it comes your time to die, be not like those who weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. That would be it. That's strong. I like that. Chris, you're, you're deeply, I mean, your work is deeply connected to fitness in many ways. What's your yeah. fitness routine or maybe more appropriately, what do you suggest for a firefighter to kind of be the, the penultimate sort of fitness routine or program? Uh, okay, so a couple of things. One, something is better than nothing, but there are a lot of something that will hinder you and get in your way. So um, as I currently study for the uh, NSCA's Tactical Strength and Conditioning Facilitator class, um, what I come back to is an idea that I, um, I rooted fire service warrior fitness in and have found to be fairly useful. I think that once again, uh, generalization is important. I think you want to be a generalist, but I think you want to strength bias. So um, being a power lifter will not necessarily make you a good firefighter. However, you need to spend some time with a barbell on your back because strength is, strength is injury prevention at the end of the day. And um, if what we want is longevity, then I think having prepared our bodies to deal with um, a considerable amount of external loading and a considerable amount of having to do heavy work is important. And the, the most efficient way of doing that is with a barbell. It's not the only way to do it. You can do it with strongman tools, right? You can do it by picking up bags of concrete. There's all kinds of ways of accomplishing it. The reason we use a barbell is because it's the most efficient ergonomic way of loading. Um, so I think that some sort of general physical preparation type practice with a strength bias is the way to go. So if you asked me to, um, to write the back of an envelope prescription for somebody, what I would say is this, is that you want to plan your year. One, you want to plan a year at a time. When you plan your year, you want to start by planning um, two to three competition periods. And I'm using air quotes around competition. Because in the fire service, just like in law enforcement, we are everyday game players, right? So we don't have set competition times. But you need to plan your programming as though you have competitive phases. And what a competition period does is it builds in a window of time where we want to be able to express our physical capacity at its peak. And just before that, we want to have had a taper period. Just after that, we want to have a recovery period, and then we build around that to develop that capacity. And for the tactical athlete, to me, what that looks like is um, a sort of a recovery phase, a, a general low-stress, low-volume phase where we focus on just moving. It's a great time to work on body weight movements. We go from that into um, what I consider a work capacity endurance type building phase where we are using both um, kind of hypertrophy 
muscle building and metabolic conditioning to lay on a foundation of work capacity. We shift from that into a strength phase where we are working more on that raw strength development, taking that, that muscle capacity that we have we go from that to working on expressing ourselves through power movements. We go from that into competi competition, quote unquote, prep of um, once again, we've kind of maybe lost a little bit of our metabolic conditioning. We do a couple of weeks of high intensity interval type training, CrossFit type training, really ratchet up the metabolic capacity. And we go into that taper for period and let our body kind of recover from some of that stress. And then we keep stacking that. And the, the time periods of those cycles vary based upon your operating environment and your lifestyle. And you can stack those as, you know, week-long mesocycles. You can stack those as much larger training blocks. And you have to kind of experiment and find what works for you. Do what you like would be a huge thing because doing what you like is going to ensure compliance. You're going to actually show up and do your program. If you hate what you do every day, you're not going to do it. Um, and then also spend some time doing stuff you hate. <laughs> you should be doing the things that you suck at. You should be doing the things that you don't like because that's how you get better. And so I think that broadly and in generally some type of GPP practice, general physical preparedness based practice with a strength bias in a periodized program, I think there's a thousand ways to accomplish that, but I think that's the way to go. Very cool. All right, Chris, uh, we've been going for a while, so uh, I want to talk about Fire Service Warrior. Um, recently relaunched, we were able to yeah. re repurchase the domain name. Uh, it's begun uh, cycling some, some of the old content back up there. Uh, yep. so what's the future? What's your vision for fire service warrior right now? So the, the vision right now is to work on reconstituting the archive of the material that was there and to make that available again for folks to have access to. There was a lot of really good material there. Um, a lot of really profound thoughts from a lot of people in the fire service, men and women all over the country who had, um, some really deep thoughts about what we as a community, what we as a culture are doing. And there's a lot of value in that. And I'm really excited to see that resource become available again. So right now, the vision is continuing to reconstitute that archive and rebuild it. I've said in um, Instagram videos, I've said in uh, YouTube videos that I don't know what it looks like beyond that. And I still don't know what it looks like beyond that. Um, you know, as much as I, as much as I still have information to share and ideas to share, um, I've always said that if fire service warrior was the Chris Brennan show, then it would need to die. Um, because I don't like things that are based upon a cult of personality. Um, if the idea is not able to stand and have validity uh, outside of one person driving it, then um, then it gets to have its time and then move aside and let other ideas have their time. Um, the only reason this is back is because people wanted it back. Um, and I'm 
I'm still uncomfortable with what my role in that other than as a curator and as a publisher looks like of this extant material. Um, you know, is there room for people to continue to contribute to it? Yeah, probably. If somebody was interested in writing something new for the site, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing it. Um, but, but I don't know where it's going to go. And I don't know if I have a vision other than just getting that resource back to being an archive where people can go back and see the genesis of some of these ideas that are playing out across the fire service now. I, I guess this is where I need to to thank you. Uh, fire Service Warrior was just incredibly formative for me. Uh, found it as a probationary firefighter, and um, it had a, a, an amazing impact on setting me on what I think and I hope is the proper trajectory for my career. So um, thank you for, for what you did. Thank you to all the contributors, and thank you for bringing it back because you're right, that archive of material is is amazing and it's deep and it's important. Yeah, I, I you're welcome. Feels like a weird thing to say, but I do believe that if somebody says thank you, you should say you're welcome. So you're welcome. Um, it, I, you can leave the stuttering in. You don't need to edit that out. But um, I think that the important thing. The most important thing that Fire Service Warrior has brought to the table throughout its time is the idea that you're not alone. There, you know, um, there are plenty of lazy people in this world. I think the, the notion that carbon-based life forms are inherently lazy is a valid one. Um, I think that we will always do the, that mammals will do the least amount possible to get by is a default setting um, because it's a survival mechanism, right? You, you do, you expend the least amount of energy you have to, to get the results you want. Um, there are some of us who are driven to do more than the least amount possible. Um, but that nail often gets hammered down and for me, it was always about, initially it was about being an obstinate nail. <laughs> you know, you were going to have to get a sledgehammer and I still wasn't getting driven in. Um, and what I found was that there are a lot of obstinate nails around the country that don't want to be driven into their hole. And um, that there's, there's value in being that example. Um, and whether that is the example of Fire Service Warrior is a website, as a community, being that for individuals who aspire to it, or being the individual on your company or at your department that says, yeah, cool, I'm gonna go train. You know, why are you reading that? Because I want to. You know, why'd you buy your own tools? Because I wanted to. It's good, I'm not asking you to do it. Just doing my own thing here, doing what I think is right for me. And, and that's how we pass on generational change, right? We don't change things overnight. It's the same, it's the same thing we're talking about with Adult Academy, right? How do we get, how do we make the world a better place by having better kids? How do we have better kids? We have better mentors. Well, the fire service warrior type person is the person who chooses to be the mentor.
They, They choose to step up and say, I'm going to do this with intentionality so that I not only do it what I think is the right way, but so that I am an example for others. Right. And it gives people permission. I, I, I think that's yeah. as I look back as a as a brand new guy, it gave me permission to go try to be that person. And I had this wider sphere of influence other than uh, the three or four or five people that I was on duty with who sometimes were fantastic and sometimes were not. But but it gave me permission to to be that person out there drilling late or purchasing my own tools or reading, reading for fun, reading for further information, reading beyond essentials. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and it's it comes back to that whole thing that I was talking about earlier with, you know, brush showing up and starting to write for the site was a demonstration of social value that brought other people into the site. The, the community itself is a demonstration of social value. Right. It allying yourself with a community helps give you the support to do what you believe is right. And we all find communities that help support us, that bolster us in doing the things that we believe in. You know, people join a CrossFit gym because they want a community of people who believe in the same sort of things that they believe in, that will hold them accountable, that will help them, but that also, you know, that will be part of their choir. And Fire service warrior is that it's a, it's one more choir, right? And you you come in and you sing some of the songs and it re-energizes you and it lets you it makes you feel like hey I'm not alone, right? I'm not the only person with this thought process. Right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm not by myself. And isolation is the one thing that kills human beings, without any question, kills their motivation, kills their spirit, it mentally and physically destroys them. And once again, whether, whether quote unquote, our way is the way or not, I don't think it is. I think it's a way. There are other people that have the same or familiar ways. And I think that reminding those folks that there is a community of people is important. Thank you for creating that community. Again, um, I think it's just been incredibly valuable and it was so timely at a time when social media was exploding. So it, it was uh, it was fantastic. I'm so excited to see it back and thank you for, for what you're doing in uh, making that resource available for others. Yeah. All right. Uh, Chris, I think that uh, about wraps it up. You've been very kind to donate uh, nearly two hours of your time here, and and I appreciate that a lot. So um, I'm going to wish you well. I'm going to wish you a happy 2019 and uh, and sign off. Awesome. Same to you, brother. I hope uh, – thank you for the opportunity to do this. Um, it's, it's exciting. Um, and, yeah, I'm looking forward to what's coming in 2019 as well. So Excellent. Happy Excellent. New Year. Be well. See you soon. You as well. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Cheers.
Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. And let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do.